I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and be turning once again to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, we want to continue our study of this book and we come to verse 21. Verse 21, Ephesians 5 verse 21, but I want us to read verses 18 through 21 because it, it gives us the context here. But again, our focus is just going to be verse 21. The title of the message is Submit to One Another. Submit to One Another. Ephesians 5, and I want to begin reading in verse 15, uh, verse 18, excuse me. The Word of God reads, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and here's our verse for today, verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, we've been looking at the results of what it is to be filled with the Spirit, as it says in verse 18 here. And we've seen over the last two Lord's Days that there's evidence of being filled with the Spirit when you look at someone's worship. When you look at their worship, that there's an evidence that is, that is Godward as we think about what he writes in verse 19. Look at verse 19 again. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And so we saw this particular result of being filled with the Spirit. We talked about our singing and what our singing should be characterized by. We talked about nine characteristics of Spirit-filled worship, what it is to worship God when you're filled with the Spirit of God. So one of the results of being filled with the Spirit has to do directly with worship, with our relationship to God. That is true of our individual worship. That is true of our corporate worship when we gather together on the Lord's Day. But in verse 21, we see there's a second result of being filled with the Spirit, and that has to do with our relationships to other people. Other people. If you're filled with the Spirit, if you are controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, if you are yielded to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it's not only going to show up in your relationship to God, but it is also going to show up in your relationship to other people. Notice what it says in verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And by the way, notice this. I, I want your eye to be looking right there on your page in your Bible just to see right where this is situated, where verse 21 is situated, because that right there gives us a lesson all in itself about this. It tells us, first of all, that God's plan for relationships requires salvation. It requires salvation. Notice, notice again, let, let your eye fall on the page here. Before he talks to us about husbands and wives, you see that, verses 22 through 33, before he talks to us about children and parents, over in chapter 6, the first four verses there, before he talks to us about work relationships, before he talks to us about our own walk with the Lord going on into chapter 6, he talks to us, first of all, before all those things, about being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit. And we know that it's only those who have been saved who even have the Holy Spirit of God. And so it's impossible for a human being to experience God's blueprint, really for any relationship in life, uh, to have a marriage that God intended for human beings to have, to have a relationship with your children that God intended for human beings to have, to be able to work in a way that honors the true and living God. All of that is impossible, impossible, unless we're saved. That is what he's saying here. But even after we're saved, we also need to recognize this, that his plan for relationships requires the power of his spirit it requires the power of his spirit listen can we get an amen to this you can be saved and you can still be walking in the flesh right 
Absolutely, that is true. And so as soon as you cease to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, as soon as you choose your own way, as soon as you, you, you begin to, to yield to the impulses of your life and to the dictates of, of, of your own flesh, instead of the Holy Spirit of God, well, it's going to show up. I mean, it's going to show up. Just like being filled with the Holy Spirit of God shows up. Well, when you're being led in the flesh, that is going to show up as well. It's going to be evident. You're going to be able to see it. It shows up in your attempts to worship. It shows up with your relationship with your husband or your wife. It shows up with the relationship that you have with your children. It shows up at work. It shows up in your personal life. And so not only does it require you to be saved, but if we're going to live this out, we must be yielded to the Lordship of Christ, moment by moment, day by day. We must be filled with the Spirit if we're going to live this way. There's no other way around it. There's no other way it's going to happen. But there's also something else that is required. And this is really what we're going to get to this morning in verse 21. If we're going to experience God's plan for our relationships, it requires a desire to assume our place. A desire to assume our place. And that's what I want us to think about today. What, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to have a desire to assume our rightful roles and our rightful places? There are three things that I want us to look at here as we try to understand this, as we try to wrap our arms around this. And the first thing I want you to see with me, and these are listed out in your bulletin if you want to follow along. The first thing is this. I want you to see the meaning of mutual submission. The meaning of mutual submission. What does mutual submission mean? And as always, we have to begin with understanding the meaning of this. What does verse 21 really speak of when it says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, the first thing I want you to bear in mind is this, that this is a principle for all relationships. This is a principle for all relationships. What's going to follow really are three illustrations of this one principle. In other words, the main truth to be kept in mind when you study marriage or when you study raising children or when you study work relationships, or when you study your own personal life, the main truth to keep in mind is that it is this principle that is being applied to all of those relationships. So, when he talks about marriage, and we're going to see that he's simply applying this principle of mutual submission. When he's talking about parents and children, we're going to see that he's applying this principle of mutual submission. When he's talking about masters and slaves, he's applying this principle of mutual submission. And so this is the principle that you and I have to get a hold of because it is true to say that we won't know how to live in a marriage. Uh, we won't raise our kids. We will not know how to behave at work. We will not know even how to live personally if we don't have this truth at the forefront of all of our relationships. And so that's why it's positioned right here immediately after talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit of God here and how it affects your relationship to God. He puts this particular instruction here that we might be prepared to see what it is to live out being filled with the Holy Spirit in every other relationship in life. So, this is a principle for all of our relationships, and we need to bear that in mind, okay? Now, there's something else that we need to keep in mind here, what's being referred to in verse 21. Really, it is a, a certain way of looking at things. It's a particular way of looking at things. It speaks of an understanding that we have, a, a certain desire that we have on our part. The word, and you see it translated there, it's be subject to, that's one Greek word there. It is a Greek word, hupotasso, hupotasso. And that is a military word. And really that in and of itself should, should give us some understanding of what he's teaching here. I think that the foremost truth to understand here that is presented to us here in verse 21 is this, 
we have got to realize that if we are a Christian, it is bigger than you. You cannot be individualistic. If you are a Christian, you now belong to a great company, a great body. You now belong to this regiment, if you will, if we're using the military illustration here. Now, we need to understand, how does salvation come to us? Salvation comes to us individually. Yeah, yes, it does. Thank God that it does. And we still remain individuals. But what he is teaching us here in verse 21 is that you have to put away your individuality in a sense of seeing yourself as being part of this whole. So you put away any self-promotion. You put away any self-assertion. You put away the, 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 the putting forward of self. And instead, you have to realize that you now belong to this group and the body. The body is more important than the individual parts, if you want to sort of think about it that way. And again, remember, this is a military word. And for those of you who have been in the military, those of you who have been around in the military, you understand what this means. When, whenever someone joins the military, that, that they understand, they realize, at least they will, they'll get it somewhere in basic training or they're just not going to work out with the military, right? I mean, they're going to understand that the whole is more important than the parts. The whole. The, the question becomes, well, what is best for the United States Marines? What is best for the U.S. Navy? What is best for the Army? What is best for the Air Force? What is best for the Coast Guard? Ultimately, the question is, well, what is best for the U.S. government? Now, that really is the question. It's not... It's not, well, what is best for Van? Even though we do, you know, you get in the military and people are getting in it for, uh, for certain benefits that they can receive individually. Yeah, that, that, that's true. But, but really there's a sense in which when you sign up for the military, you are really signing away your rights. In a sense, I mean, you're, you're signing your, your life away. You just can't go on vacation any old time you want to go on vacation. You just can't take leave any old time you want to go take leave. No, it's at the dictates of the military. You can't get up just any old time you want to get up. There are times where when you're on the job, you just can't wear whatever you want to wear on the job site. You've got a uniform you have to wear. You can't get any old haircut or hairstyle. Well, I mean, within limits you can, but in general, you can't get any haircut that you want. No, it has to be a certain way. Why? Because... You're not so much an individual anymore as you are part of a group. You are part of a group. I was so much a part of the group that when I got married to April, I had to ask permission from the military, from the Navy, if I could bring her along. And the common thing was, well, you were not issued a wife in your sea bag. <laughs> and so you had to ask permission, you know, can she be a part of, of me? You know, it's called command sponsorship. And so... So all this to say that there are rules you have to abide by. Uh, you must be willing to submit yourself to others. You cannot act independently. Now, this is a military term. And so really what a military person does, because they are in the military, believers are to do voluntarily. They are to do this voluntarily because of our love for the Lord. And listen, we're not talking here about hairstyles. We're not talking here about dress styles. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what he has in mind. But what he does have in mind is, and really what this word means is, it means to arrange yourself under. That's what the, the word means, to, to come under authority, to, to arrange yourself according to your proper place. And that's what I said. I mean, that's what I meant earlier when I said that we are to be willing to assume our place, our proper place. So the spirit-filled life is going to be one where I will have the single desire and ambition to please my master. Uh, that is what I want to do. And I will understand that Jesus Christ has an assignment for me. He has an assignment for us. He has a placement for us. He has a role for us. And so to be filled with the spirit is this. It is to want nothing more than to simply find your master's place for you 
and to assume that role. That's simply what it is. That's what you want. And that's what is meant by mutual submission. Mutual submission. Listen, when we look at this, mutual submission, it does not mean that, okay, well, a child has to come under a, parent, a parent's authority, but also uh, a parent has to come under a child's authority. That's not what this is saying here. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that, well, parents should be under the, the authority of their children. Now, that's mutual submission. No, that is not what this is saying. But that's oftentimes what you hear when you talk about mutual submission, right? That you would have this. But that's not what this means at all. It means that the parent wants to assume the role of a parent that is right in the sight of God. It means that a child wants to assume the role of a child that is right and that is pleasing in the sight of God. And the parent would never want to force the child to assume some other role. And so in that sense, they submit to one another by the parent being who the parent is to be and the child being who the child is to be it is by a husband being who a husband is to be. It is by a wife being who a wife is to be. It is by a slave, or we would say in our day, an employee being who an employee is to be, and an employer, a master in this day and age, being what, who and what a master is to be. And so this is what is meant by mutual submission. It is discovering what God's plan is for these roles. That is mutual submission. And so this brings us to the second point that I want you to see here. I want us to look at the manifestation of mutual submission. The manifestation of mutual submission. So if, if, if indeed we are walking in this kind of submission to one another, how does it reveal itself? What, what does it look like? What, what is the manifestation of mutual submission? And to try to capture this for us, I want to describe it negatively before we look at it positively. A lot of times it helps us to know what it doesn't mean in order to know what it does mean. So, so and again, this is not going to represent any type of exhaustive list here, but, but just some things for us to keep in mind. First of all, we can say this. If we are submitted to one another, it means that we will not live impulsively. We will not live impulsively. What he's talking about here in verse 21 is, is, is we, we just can't live selfishly. Now think about it. Perhaps nothing is more characteristic of a selfish life than people just doing whatever they feel like doing, right? That is a selfish life. That is an impulsive life. In other words, if I wake up tomorrow morning and I feel like being grouchy, well then guess what? I'm going to be grouchy. If I wake up tomorrow morning and I feel I want to go my own way, well, then I'm going to go my own way. If I feel I want to stay, get up tomorrow and, and I don't want to see anyone, no matter what happens, I, I'm just not going to see anyone. If I don't want to talk, I'm not going to talk. If I want to talk, I want to talk. Just, just selfish. In other words, you're being led by what you feel. You're being led around by your impulses. But do you realize that mutual submission... Mutual submission is something entirely opposite of that. We realize God has a plan. We realize God has an order. We realize God has a will. And so now I'm willing to subject my will to wherever he wants me to go. I'm willing to go wherever he wants me to go. I'm willing to do whatever he wants me to do. And wherever he calls me to speak, I'm willing to speak. And wherever he calls me to be silent, I'm willing to be silent. And wherever I'm called upon to go out and to give his word, I want to go out and give his word. So you see, we're not living by our impulses anymore. We're living by his word. And so one of the ways by which you can examine yourself to see if you are living according to this truth is this. Do you live day in and day out according to what you feel? Or do you live according to his word? Just sort of audit your lifestyle. Are you being led about by your impulses? Second, it means not only that we will not live impulsively, but close to that, it means that we will not live selfishly. Look at what he says in verse 21. 
Are you living your life, notice, in the fear of Christ? And we're going to talk about that more in just, just a moment. But for right now, are you living your life consciously in reverence to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you submitted to him as Lord? And if you are, that means you cannot be living selfishly. You can't do both of these things at the same time. If you're practicing verse 21, listen, you are not at the center of the picture. Christ is. Christ is. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why you must be filled with the Holy Spirit of God to live out verse 21. The work of the Holy Spirit is that he always makes us mindful of Christ. And we want to do our master's will. We long to do our master's will. We desire to do our master's will. But let's put this in a positive way. Let's say this in a positive way. We, we, we talked about a couple of negatives, now let's say it positively. What, what does it mean here? How, how does it show up if I'm living out verse 21? Well, first of all, if I'm living it out, it will mean that I have seen the truth about myself that I've seen the truth about myself. What, what is the truth about ourselves? Listen to this. I want you to listen to this very carefully, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Listen to the first question in this verse. For who regards you as superior? Wow, that'll deal a blow to pride right there, right? Who thinks you're all that? Who thinks you're so great and so wonderful? For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Verse 21 of Ephesians 5 requires that I recognize this about myself. That, that is, if there's any good thing in me, I mean, I have nothing to boast about. Why? Because if it's, if it's something good in me, it was given to me. It was given to me. If I know anything, it's because he taught me. If I'm able to live anything, it's because of his grace. So that we, we never boast. We don't have anything to boast about. We're never superior. We're never superior. And, and, and did, you, did you see that at the, at the beginning? Did you hear that? Paul gave him kind of this little nudge of reality, right? When he asked that first question, for who regards you as superior? In other words, certainly not anyone who knows the word of God. They wouldn't do that. And I think it's sometimes it's good for us that it's just a good self-test to realize that most people don't think we're as grand and as great as we think we are. I mean, it's just a fact of the matter. They don't. I mean, really, who regards you as superior? What is the intended answer to that question? He doesn't give the answer. It's so obvious it hits you right in the face. The answer is no one. No one. Then he goes on to say, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why are you boasting as if you did it yourself? So no one is intrinsically superior. Whatever we are, we are by the grace of God the grace of God. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I, I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Now, there's that perspective we need. There's that, that, that healthy self-perspective. It's not a false humility here that he's having here because he didn't deny his hard work. He doesn't do that in this verse. He didn't deny that he was an apostle. He didn't deny that, that God had used him. He was able to see accurately exactly what the Lord was doing with him. But at the very same time, he was able to say, it is by grace that I am what I am. I'm all these things, I've done all these things, the Lord has used me in all these ways, but it's by grace that I am what I am. I want to tell you, that is the right perspective. That is the right perspective. So it means that we've seen the truth about ourselves. And close to that second, it means that we see the truth about what we really know. 
the truth about what we really know. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2 says this, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. If anyone ever imagines they have ever arrived, if anyone ever imagines, well, you know, after all these years of learning, after all these years of being in a Reformed Baptist church and all of this theology and all of this doctrine here, I am finally here. I am at this arrived, sort of exalted, lofty place where now my role is not to be taught. My role is just to teach everyone else. And so they have need of me. They have need to learn of me. And my time for learning, well, really, that is kind of passed by. If anyone thinks that, they immediately reveal that they don't know anything, as they ought to know it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then... I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. There's the truth about what we know. The truth is this, we're all learning, right? I mean, we're, we're all growing and the very best of our knowledge, you take the one who knows the very most, the very best of our knowledge, and you know what that's gonna look like? That's gonna look like looking through a dirty mirror. That's what that's gonna be like, an unclear mirror. But praise God, when we see the Lord face to face on that day, then this says, we will fully know as we have been fully known. But until then, until then, we are all growing. So the third thing we can say that this means, when we're walking in obedience to verse 21, third, it means this, that we count others as more important than ourselves. We, we count others as more important than ourselves. This is what I meant when I said a little while that the whole is more important than the parts here. The whole is more important than the parts. Now understand, again, we, we need to keep these, these two things together. From God's, vantage, from God's vantage point, he loves each and every one of us. Because he set his love upon us, he cherishes each and every one of us. And he does this equally. Listen, there's, there's no favoritism whatsoever with God. In other words, what I'm saying is this. We can trust the Lord and we can trust him individually, can't we? But when it comes, and that's his perspective. When it comes to our perspective, when it comes to how we look at this, we are not to be caught up in ourselves as individuals. This is what he's teaching us here. We leave that up to the Lord. We leave it up to the Lord to take care of us individually. But we, when it comes to us and what we're thinking about, we're concerned more with others. We're supposed to be thinking out toward others, more concerned with the body of believers than we are with ourselves. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And you notice those two things seem to always be tied together in Scripture. Because when you have a selfish life, guess what other type of life you automatically have? You have a conceited life. A conceited life. So it says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Or as Romans chapter 14, verse 15 Puts it, and there in that passage, what, what they're talking about is they're talking about Christian liberty. And you've got someone saying there, well, you know what, I, I've got all this liberty to eat all this, this food, this meat that is sacrificed to idols. I mean, the, 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 they butcher a cow, and, and the meat is very expensive per pound, but you know what? They take it over, and they buy it to go sacrifice it to idols. They use it in a worship service. And guess what? Nothing is wrong with that meat. And after they pay the high dollar price to use it in the worship service, they sell it out the back door of the temple, uh, of the temple through the temple butcher shop. And guess what? I can get it like 75% marked down there. I can get some real cheap meat. It doesn't matter that they used it in a worship service that was offered to false gods. And so 
I have this knowledge. I can eat this meat and there's nothing wrong with it. The, the, the meat is still the meat. But Romans chapter 14 verse 15 says this. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you see, he regards it as something else. It gags him to think that it was used in a pagan worship service because he just got saved out of that. And he just hasn't matured to the point where he can see it for what it is. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with food him for whom Christ died. He's saying, man, don't you understand the level of where this falls on the level of importance here? Listen, food is nothing compared to your brother. There's nothing compared to your brother. And so better not to partake in this or in that or whatever, though you may have the freedom to do so. I mean, really, what, what is more important than your brother? That's what he's saying there. And so if I'm walking in obedience to verse 21, it means that I count others more important than myself. And this leads to another thought fourth. It means that we are willing to absorb offenses for the sake of the body. We are willing to absorb offenses for the sake of the body. Listen, if we're going to walk in obedience to verse 21 here, listen, if, if your marriage is going to honor Christ, if your relationship with your children is going to honor Christ, if your work relationships are going to honor Christ. Now, let, let, let's just expand this beyond just what follows this. If your friendships are going to honor Christ, if your relationships that you have in the body of Christ, if they are going to honor Christ, I promise you this on, on the authority of the Word of God, that sooner or later, each and every one of us are going to have to know and to learn what it means to absorb offenses. I mean, we're, we're going to have to, to have someone do something to us that is wrong. For someone to genuinely wrong us, to, to, to offend us, and we're going to have to know what it is to forgive them and to forgive them from our hearts, even at times when they don't ask for the forgiveness. So the question is this, are you willing to absorb an offense for the sake of the body of Christ? That is the question. I want to tell you, that, that is a real test from verse 21. You say, well, well, Pastor, where do you get that from? Well, there are multiple examples I could give, but let me just give you one. That's a very clear example. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6. Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. He says, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. You, 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 go, you go to court, you're going to take a brother to court, and you're going to try to win your lawsuit. Do you not even understand? You've already lost. In the big picture, you have already lost. You say, what do you mean I've already lost? Well, listen, middle of verse 7. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Do you know what the word defrauded means? That Greek word translated literally means? He's asking you this question. Why not rather be taken advantage of? Why not rather be taken advantage of? Verse 8. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. He's saying you've already lost. You've already lost. Why? Because if you would have honored Christ, you would have been willing to absorb the offense. You would have been willing to do that. You would have been willing to have been wrong. You, have been, you would have been willing to have been defrauded so as not to dishonor the name of Christ out in public before unbelievers. You would have been willing to do that. You would have not taken this out into the arena of unbelievers and drag the name of Christ through that as you bear the name of Christ as believers in Christ. You would not have done that. You forgot the body of Christ. 
That is what you did. You forgot the testimony of Christ. You forgot those things are more important than individual you. You forgot it. You didn't take it into account. I want you to just think back. Think back here recently, and I want you to, to ask you this. When was the last time that you willingly absorbed an offense against you? So, someone did wrong to you, and it was true wrong. It wasn't just a, a preference thing or anything like that. But when was the last time that someone truly wronged you and you were just willing and you chose purposefully, you know, I, I'm just going to let this go. It would not honor Christ for me to pursue this. So I'm just going to let it go. There's a fifth thing we can say just to sort of sum this up right here. We can put it this way. It means that we're walking in the fruit of the Spirit. Really, that brings it all together, right? It means that we're walking in the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and following. You all know these verses. It says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There, there is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is walking in love. And when you are walking in love, you know what there is? There's joy. There's peace. There's patience. There's kindness. There's goodness. There's self-control. There's gentleness. How many of us need to hear this this morning after the week we had this week i want to ask you to raise your hands <laughs> we all need this don't we we all need this think about the things that end up hurting relationships in the body of christ think about it suspicion of one another sometimes maybe a critical judgmental attitude but you know what? All of those things, all of those things are to be put away if you are walking in the love of Jesus Christ. Because those things can't coexist with God's love. They just can't. So what is the meaning of mutual submission? It means that I want to assume my God-given place. What is the manifestation of mutual submission? How does it show up? Well, self is not at the center of my life but rather what is in my life. There is selflessness. That there's a selflessness that is in my life by virtue of what the Holy Spirit of God is doing in my heart. Now third, I want you to see with me the motive for mutual submission. The motive for mutual submission. In the world we live in today, why would anyone want to live this way? Why, why, why would anyone want to live counting others more important than them. Well, look at verse 21, because verse 21 gives us the motive. And be subject to one another. That's what we're to do. Now look at the motive. In the fear of Christ. In the fear of Christ. In reverence for Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, that is the only motive that will ever move you to do this. That is, Christ is the only thing that will ever move you to take you out of first place and put others before you. Because until then, it's always going to be about you and you're going to put yourself above others. But if we love Christ, if we reverence Christ, well, now that's different. That's different. And to show you how central this is, and also just to demonstrate that everything that follows here is really going to be an illustration of verse 21. Do you notice how this motive is repeated in each one of these relationships that he gives to us? 
Look at chapter 5 and chapter 6 with me. Verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Why? Why, why, should a wife, why should a wife do that? Why should a wife be subject to her own husband? What does it say? As to the Lord. As to the Lord Jesus. You see, it's in reverence for Christ. You submit yourself to your husband. It's not because he's so great. It's not because he's making all the right decisions. It's because Christ is great. And because you love Christ. That is why you do it. And husbands, why should you love your wives? Why, why, why should you love your wife? Verse 25. Because Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Children, why would you be subject to your parents? Why would you, why, why would you come under the authority of your parents and love and respect them and obey them? Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents. What does it say? In the Lord. Out of reverence for Jesus Christ. And fathers, verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Here it is, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord as you train your children. So who is at the forefront of your mind through all of these things? Who is at the forefront of your thinking in all of these things? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ. And if you were a slave, if you were a slave in the first century, if you were a slave, why would you ever want to be obedient to your master? Well, look at verse 5, chapter 6. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Verse 9, and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him that is with christ it is about christ so why do we want to uh, to find our place why do we want to assume our role here we do it out of love for god's order that he has established here it is because we fear and reverence the lord jesus christ we we, we love him and you know what? This really describes everything that we do as a believer, right? At the very heart of it all, it's all about Him. It's because we love Him. It is all in reverence to Him. Now let's just talk about this specifically for a moment. And, and again, let's just start with the negative side of it. What, what does this not mean as we're seeking to do this? Well, this means I don't assume a role simply because it's the right thing to do I don't assume the role God has given me simply because it's the right thing to do and I think that sort of betrays how sometimes we can wrongly think about these things because sometimes we can have this attitude okay that wife of mine the Bible tells me to love her she's tough to love but if the Bible tells me to love her I'm going to love her or the wife says about the husband, you know what, he is just, he's a mess. You know what, and so I'm going to, to bite my lower lip and I'm going to soldier on because the Bible tells me to submit to him. So, so, so I'm, I'm going to do this. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to charge into this. I want to tell you, do you realize that is not what verse 21 is telling us to do? Do you understand this? This is not about principle this is about a person here this is about responding to jesus christ as your lord this is not so much about the roles and responsibilities and what you're to do this is about christ this is about your relationship to christ and this is precisely what sets a christian person apart from a non-christian person listen you can have an unbeliever and they can be in a church they can be a church member. They can have their role on the name of a church. They can have a doctrinal statement in their head. They can have um, certain moral standards, certain uh, principles that they want to live up to. And they don't even know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I mean, they've never even been saved. But what they do is they sort of carry around this rule book in their mind and with a sense of duty, just duty, no devotion. No devotion whatsoever. No, no, no love, but 
no, no relationship, but with a sense of duty, sort of like the unsaved Pharisees, they try to live up to the rule book of the New Testament. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about doing what you do simply and merely because it is the right thing to do. He says, do what you must do out of a right relationship with the Lord. This is what he's saying out of fear of Christ because you love this person, capital P. You know this person. You want to be submitted to this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to follow this person as your Lord. And so therefore, that's your reason. It's not because, well, you know what, I go to this church, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, and I need to kind of just fit in the flow of doing what they all do so I can kind of look like all of them. No, it's because of Christ. It's because of Him. So now let's state it positively. Positively. Why, why should I want to live this out? What specifically does it mean to live in the fear of Christ? Well, it means, number one, it means I'm doing what Jesus taught me. I'm doing what Jesus taught me. You see, he taught us to live like this. You say, well, where did he teach us that? Well, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13 for just a moment. I want you to see this. John chapter 13. Again, here, many examples we could give here, but let me just give you one here. John chapter 13, and look beginning in verse 12. John chapter 13, verse 12. It says, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you simply know these things. Is that what your Bible say? No. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you do them. Oh, it's, it's all well and good to know what the Bible teaches. And we must know what the Bible teaches. We will never do what the Bible teaches unless we first know what the Bible teaches. And it's all well and good to know what the Bible teaches about serving one another. But he says here, blessed are you if you do them. If you do them. Why should I want to serve my wife? Why should a wife want to serve her husband? Why should, in the biblical sense, should I want to serve my children? And why should my children want to, to serve me as their father? Why should that have be a desire why should I want to serve someone who works for me if I was an employer and in the right kind of sense walking in the order that God has ordained here and why if I work for someone would I would I want to to serve them it is because of this it is because I serve Christ I serve Christ and because Christ taught us this and he didn't just teach it to us in words. He taught it to us in deeds, his own deeds. So positively, it means that I'm doing what Christ taught me to do. I'm doing what my master taught me to do. That's what it means to fear Christ. I'm doing what he taught me. Let me give you one final thought on this and then we're done. To fear Christ means that I realize that one day... One day, he will examine me. One day, he will examine me. I realize, and I believe from my heart, that the day is coming according to the Holy Scriptures, according to the Word of God, when the Lord will truly examine me. Everyone in this place who truly knows the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior Everyone in this place who is a believer in Christ, who has truly been saved, there is coming a time, just as sure as you're sitting in this place right now, that we are going to stand before our Savior face to face. 
And scripture tells us that we will be evaluated at that time and we will be examined. You say, but, but doesn't the scripture, the Bible teach us that that's going to be a positive examination for the purpose of reward? Yes, absolutely, it does, it does. But just as the Bible teaches that so that it will motivate Christians toward holy living, we need to understand we don't want to be ashamed in that day. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want you to see this with me. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse, thir- uh, verse 10, actually. The Apostle Paul writes this. He's writing to the Corinthians, who are very much lacking in these areas. And he says this, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, stop right there. What exactly is this fire? Well, you look at the text, and we're really not told. But I do know this. When the Son of Man is glorified, we see in the Word of God, that in that glorified state as he is described there, the Bible describes him as having eyes like a flame of fire. Almost as if there's this look, there's this examining gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ that will test everything. Verse 14, notice closely. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So, there's going to come a day of reward. This says that. But yes, there's also going to come a day of loss. This says that as well. When everything that we did that was really wood hay and straw when it is revealed on that day to have been just that it was wood hay and straw and on that day it won't really matter that to all of us in this day it looks really really good it looked like something that would really really remain it looked like something that really really had significance but no matter how much it is celebrated here on earth in that day It is not going to matter. What was truly produced by the Holy Spirit of God, this is saying that that is what will stand the test. And everything else, all the stuff that's just produced by human talent and human machinery and human ingenuity, because, you know, we we know how to to gather a crowd. We know how to to invoke a feeling. We know how to, to promote enthusiasm and all these things. Everything done in the flesh that is not going to stand the test. 1 Corinthians 9, look at that. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Here's what this knowledge does in our lives. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I mean, do do you realize this? Do you you look around at at all these athletic events that we're having all the time, all this athletic competition that, that we all see? And do you notice the lengths that people will go through to win an earthly prize? Now, it's, it's nothing strange that many of you know I love college football. And those guys will get out there in Alabama, in Tuscaloosa, in the boiling, humid heat of August to train. 
And they, they will have done that back in the spring as well. And they do it so that in February they can all hoist this huge trophy and pass it around to one another. They can sort of, you know, some of them even kiss it. But they will go through all of that to get to that. All of that suffering. All of that conditioning to get to that. And that's just for that. And you know what? They win it in February and by midsummer it's forgotten about and they're already looking toward the next year. But that is what people would do to compete for a crown, if we could say it that way, that is perishable. But what are we working for? This says we're working for something that is imperishable. So what kind of self-discipline for the kingdom of God should be in our lives? What kind of self-control, what kind of zeal, what kind of heart should we all have to, 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 to go through with this, with all that we have? Because we are competing for an imperishable one. Verse 26, look at it. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Listen, the Christian life, believer, every believer in here, the Christian life ought to be your whole existence. Not something on the side, sort of. But, but, but everything, it ought to be why you get up in the morning. It ought to be why you're going out throughout the day. It ought to be why when you lay down at night. Jesus Christ is to be your life. Your total life. He is to be your life. And so this ought to be lived out through the whole of your life. With everything you have. Scripture says with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything I, I have. Why? Because we're talking about eternity here. We're talking about eternity. And scripture says the Lord Jesus Christ is going to examine us one day. 2 Corinthians 5. Look over there, please. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 6. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we, were at, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we, always, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or present, to be pleasing to Him. In other words, whether I'm with Him face to face one day or right now in this body, I have one ambition, one ambition only. This is the thing that is propelling my whole life. And what does He say here? It is to be pleasing to Him. Verse 10. Why? Give me a reason for that. Here it is, verse 10. For, or we could easily substitute the word because. For, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. He's saying, listen, this is how I operate my whole life. I operate my whole life because ultimately I know I must appear before the judgment seat of my Savior. And I know the one who's going to be examining me. He is my Lord. He is my master. He is my savior. He is my friend. John tells me he's my elder brother. He is the one who is going to be examining me. That all that I have done is going to, to come out now before his all-seeing examining eyes. And so Paul says, therefore, this is how I operate my life. I live my life out of the fear and reverence of Christ. This is how I live. What does it mean to fear Christ? It means this. You fear, you reverence Him knowing that He is going to examine you. Do you understand that? We are going to look into His eyes one day. We're going to look into His face. And you know what? I can never think about that without thinking about Peter. In this time, in this world, 
yet looking into the testing eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you this. Turn over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. This is Peter. You remember the Peter who said, Oh no, Lord, they may all deny you, but I'll never deny you. Lord, I'll even go with you all the way to death. I will be in lockstep marching right behind you. As you go to death, I go to death. And look what he said. Look what it says. Luke chapter 22. Look beginning in verse 54. It says this. Having arrested him, that's the Lord, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, this man was with him too. But he denied, denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You were one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, when he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Now look at this. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I want to tell you, you could have beat the apostle Peter, black and blue, with a thousand blows that day, but that would not have hurt him more than a loving, sad look from his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How will it be on that day? How will it be on that day when he examines us, when, when he looks at us with that all-perceiving gaze what do we want him to see? What, what do we want him to see? Do we want him to see how we try to push ahead of one another? How we try to put ourselves first? Do we want him to see how we try to exalt ourselves above others? Do we want him to see how we resented God's order for marriage? How, how, how we resented his order for the raising of our children? The order of our friendships, the order of our work relationships, is that what we want him to see? How we completely rebelled against what he has to say here? Or do we want him to look at us with that perfect gaze, that examining gaze, and do we want him to see a true servant's heart that has been brought about by the filling of the Holy Spirit of God? Do we want him to see a, a, a selfless life do we want him to see that in our life we knew, we understood by God's grace that if the master, if the master was stooped down and washed their feet, then a slave is not greater than the master. And by God's grace, we got it and we knew it and we lived it out. So I want to encourage all of us this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may we serve one another. May we do what this verse says. May we be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And we have to understand that our Lord has a plan for our roles. And that plan involves order. And we do not want to be found outside of our Master's plan for us. And by His grace, may we joyfully come in to that place where he would have us to be. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we pray that you would, that you would teach us to, to just assume our place in every relationship in life and to teach us the right reason to do it, Father, not just to do it out of a bare clinical obedience to your word, but to do it out of our love for you, to do it out of this relationship that we have with you, to do it because we reverence you and we love you. And may those here in this place today who do not know Christ as their Savior, may they come to know him so that they too might reverence him, that they too might have a true love 
for him. And Father, we thank you for your word. Please bless it to our hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's by grace through faith that ye are saved. A faith that's not your own. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God, the gift of God to you.